You're listening to Megiddo Radio. Megiddo Radio is a radio ministry of Megiddo Media. For more, visit our website at megiddoradio.com. That's megiddoradio.com. Welcome, this is Paul Flynn with Megiddo Radio for the 17th of December 2019. Thank you all for tuning in. This is a usual late time to be doing this program. Um, again, thankful to be able to get it out. I'm trying to keep it to Tuesday nights. Um, haven't quite settled on a time yet. I uh, wasn't even sure if I'd be able to do a program today. Uh, for those of you who uh, might be in some kind of contact with me, whether that's through Facebook or Twitter or whatever else. Uh, yesterday was the funeral service of the Reverend David Silversides. He was the former minister of Lockbrookland Reform Presbyterian Church. So didn't really know if uh, the program was going to happen today or not. And um, yeah, it was, I don't know how many people are aware of um, David Silverside's uh, illness over the last, uh, I suppose, maybe roughly two years now, um, and maybe longer uh, going back, but um, he passed away there Thursday evening, and um, it's a mixture of obviously sadness, because we're dearly going to miss him, we dearly miss him, and um, but near the end of his life, uh, he had a condition with something akin to Parkinson's. And at the end of his life, uh, it was difficult for him even to speak. His body was shutting down around him. And um, yeah, and but no matter what was happening around him, even though he was so physically ill, it, it just you could just see his face would light up whenever he'd see people. He just loved ministering he loved people he he could never even in his illness he was always in wonderful spirits considering his condition he was a wonderful testimony right to the very end there are i don't know how many thousand messages and teachings and things like that on sermon audio and if you haven't heard him already there's loads and loads of materials there um on sermon audio and also things uh there was two i think we i did two radio programs with him interviewed and i praise god that i that there was the opportunity to do that over the last few years um one including uh, the reverend kenneth stewart who is um an excellent minister of the gospel in uh glasgow the reformed presbyterian church there and we did one on psalmody and all that so um those were some of my favorite programs also did one on holy days which particularly fills in this time of year if actually people um are concerned and they should be about what the the bible says about religious holy days and setting days aside now um so i'd ask you to keep before we get into the, the main topic of today's um program Please keep the Silversides family in your prayers. Um, it was a wonderful service yesterday. 
Uh, the Reverend Ron Rob um, said some great words after the burial. And also, uh, he's currently now our interim moderator in Loch Brickland. And also, um, a wonderful message, wonderful message was preached by Mars Roberts. I don't know, was it the occasion or whatever, but it, it, that message blessed my soul in ways I cannot describe and bless me in a way. I think a message hasn't for a very, very long time. I just something about it. And I, I'd encourage you all, maybe because of the topic, maybe because of the the occasion and the fact that Morris Roberts knew David Silverside so well. And Morris Roberts, uh, it's not just about he's a gifted speaker. Of course, he's a gifted speaker, but just you could tell the text gripped him. The, uh, the subject matter gripped him. I, I would encourage you, I took the, the message from Morris Roberts, from the live stream from Lock Brickland, and it's on the YouTube channel. And I just, I was going to put something up, you know, maybe some clips from old programs and all that, but I think he said it better than anybody else probably could. Um, he married David and Anne, his wife, uh, encouraged him to go into the ministry years ago. So <laughs> talk about having a deep insight. And also the fact that David didn't like being talked about. And, and I don't mean he didn't seek the limelight at all. And I think <laughs> he would want to be remembered in that we remember the gospel and nothing else. Just, just the way he was. And it was what was so wonderful about him. And, um, yeah, I just, and there's some, there's some books. You can contact me, mcgillfilms at gmail.com. So, um, yeah, pretty surreal day. Um, going back over old videos and things like that and just sharing them. And, um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, but while we miss him. He's in the presence of the Lord. And there's also a sense, well, there's the sadness, of course. There's also the sense of joy that what peace, what joy knowing that he is in the presence of the Lord. Anyway, so on our program today, we're going to be continuing on from last week. Uh, I was mulling over my mind whether to leave it as... Last week, we were looking at Genesis chapter 6 and how it can potentially trip people up. And I wanted to kind of lay out the doctrine, you could say, and put forward basically the historic covenantal view while also trying to stress that just because somebody holds to the quote-unquote angel view does not mean there's some dangerous heretic or something like that. There's plenty of people who hold to it. I don't encourage people to hold to it. I don't think it's a great view, but I don't think it's also, it's not something to squabble about at all. Um, I can think of a few sources. I think like, I think the, the angel view is massively popular today. Honestly, I don't know how popular it is. Um, the Reformation heritage uh, books, they put out a Bible, a study Bible, which is from what I can see. Excellent. Um, some of the, some of the the notes in Romans are done by David Silversides. It was edited by Joel Beakey. And I believe that they leave the kind of question open on Genesis 6. Double check that for me. I, I 
I maybe I don't want to be misrepresenting people or anything like that. Most of the time, I don't see people taking sides on these issues. Um, I think there's a clear reformed biblical view. Um, and I, I digress. It's it's much. I don't want to make more out of it than it is. But however, there are dangers in it as well. There are potential dangers, and I don't want to ignore them either. Um, there are the dangers we're going to look at with Chuck Missler. Now, Chuck Missler, I believe, passed away a couple of years ago. I'm picking this video to critique. I actually got to bring it up. Um, I'm picking this video to critique for one reason and one reason only. Not to pick on him, um, but simply to... This is the one video I could find that succinctly put the view in probably more detail than most would. Um, I don't think people spend much time on the passage anymore and uh they don't necessarily that's an important chapter just like any other chapter in the bible is so it seems to represent it the other possibilities we're looking at somebody like michael heiser who's very very popular today um i don't recommend before i get off the bat i don't like i believe chuck missler was a brother in the lord i don't recommend him i think some of the arguments are poor um and also yeah, fairly dangerous. And where it can lead to is this kind of, oh, there's extraterrestrials coming back, and it can lead into that area. Now, you could argue that, okay, there's an abuse of any doctrine can lead into funny, strange areas. But I want to argue from the Bible. I don't want to argue from con conjecture and all this. Where it can go to and where it can be potentially dis well, distracting, for want of a better term, just turn myself down there in case I'm too loud, is with regards to as it was in the days of Noah, so shall be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Uh, quoting from is Matthew 24, and a lot of people quote that and say, oh, well, you know, as it was in the days of Noah, what was happening in the days of Noah? Now, there's faulty exegesis going on with this New Testament passage as well. It's not just Genesis 6. But some will bring that forward and say, ha-ha, you see, the Nephilim are going to come back, or these giants are the... that there's going to be some ramping up of this, and it can, among some, go in this direction. And, and some can get so annoyed and so frustrated with the church. Why aren't they teaching this anymore? Now, if you disagree with me at the end of this, fine, fair enough. But I hope at least... The people don't put this as, oh, we're in the church. And it almost make it sound like some kind of a conspiracy that the church is too embarrassed to talk about it and all that. No, people are just not convinced of it. The people who disagree with you, I don't know what the percentage breakdown is of it. I, I looked up a lot of um, seminaries and... Um, commentaries and Hebrew and things like that. And I found, I was to my surprise, there was a lot of people who held to the angel view, the quote-unquote angel view. Now, if you're completely lost, I'm going to have to explain what the angel view is. Basically, the angel view is that the Benai and Elohim, the sons of God in Genesis 6, were angels. Now, I think you'll probably have to listen to the last program to make a lot of sense of this, because I don't want to be going back over everything. This is very much focused towards looking at the arguments of the other side. I don't plan on doing this anymore because whatever about this issue, the nastiness that kind of comes out 
there's certain topics where there's a, a lot of vitriol and it's just not really worth it. Um, whatever side, study it as you should study any parts of the scripture. Um, I would urge on you, before we get into it, a covenantal view of scripture, not just to understand this, but also to understand the entire scriptures, okay? Um, but as that is an introduction, look, if you have any questions, put them in the live stream. Um, I, I'll try and answer anything I can. I don't think this is the easiest topic, by the way. I think we should be gracious towards people who might have slight different nuances. And I've heard of this. There's another view that I didn't even touch, but that these were kings at the start of Genesis 6. I have no major qualms with that. I don't agree with it, but I think it's a bigger fish to fry. Anyway, so um, let's get over to this. This is going to be looking at Chuck Missler. We're going to be looking at the potential dangers. We're going to be looking at the... And, I, and again, I, I, I keep stressing this because people want to make this thing controversial. People on, on either side. Um, it can freak people out that anybody holds to the angel view. And there are big names. John MacArthur holds to the angel view. Godly man. Don't agree with him on a whole lot outside of... He's a wonderful preacher. Don't get me wrong. I, I love John MacArthur, by the way. Um, but that's the view he holds on that. He's dispensationalist. You kind of expect that maybe to come out of that. But there are some people, I think, who are covenantal and... It exists, and and there's going to be people who hold to it, and um, there's a lot of there's a lot of distraction online, and I would just urge you before we get into it, see what the men of old said, compare with commentaries, go to Banner of Truth and having sale and buy a lot of stuff in Banner of Truth. Anyway, let's get on to this critique of Chuck. Missler from a number of years ago, um, and the title of the vi the video is "Jesus's Strange Prediction Part 2. Second Peter, First Peter three also has a reference to keep it moving. I'll just take the one in Second Peter. Second Peter says, "For if God spared not <clears throat> the angels that sinned." but cast them down to hell. And the word he uses, happened, that's what it's translated in English, it happens to be Tartarus, I'll come back to that. And delivered them under change of darkness to be reserved in judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, and he goes on. Peter echoes the same thing that Jude says, but he adds a couple of insights. He ties it to the days of Noah. These are angels that sinned. Where are they now? They are in a special holding place. They're not in hell as we think of it. Neither Sheol nor Gehenna. Something. Now, I'm not saying that every single, it just changes the screen there. I'm not saying that every single person who holds to the angel view will necessarily agree with Chuck Missler and all this. Um, this is, Chuck is particularly popular online for having popularized this view. So that's why I'm kind of using him. Look, if this somebody would have massively different view, I would point back to the last program. He is looking at 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, and he's kind of a very strange understanding of this text. Now, um, 
he is looking at the verse that says, For if God spared not the angels of sin, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved into judgment. And um, this kind of, there's this linking back to, didn't bring out the context there, there's this linking back to Noah. Now, one of the things he's saying there is like the word for hell is Tartarus. Um, I remember I'd heard of some lots and lots of people, and the noun Tartarus in Greek is not used here. Uh, the word is Tartar. Uh oh. Did I pronounce that? Uh oh. Omega Omicron at the end of it. Um, which is not just the noun hell, Tartaro. It's the verb cast, which is translated, cast them down to hell. Now, them is um, kind of taken from the context. I think that's provided from the translators. Anyway, it's a verb. It's only used once in the New Testament. To my knowledge, it's not used at all in the Septuagint. So, what do we make of this? Now, in people will often point to Greek mythology and Tartarus. you got to be careful about extrapolations from Greek mythology. There are three commonly understood words for hell, right? Hades, Gehenna, and Tartarus. But Tartarus is not here. This word comes from Tartarus, Tartareo. Uh, like the word is here, tartastosis, which is basically um, a past tense, cast down into hell. Now, there's a sense in which this verb is not saying the word for hell is Tartarus. There's a sense. There's a sense in which it's the verb which refers to the casting down to a place of judgment. Because Tartarus does come from an idea that would have been around in the first century with the Greek language, where they thought of Tartarus as a place of, well, where judgment is um, met out in kind of a nether world. Look, the word Hades, which is also translated hell in most Bibles and Gehenna, uh, these were also used, okay? So you got to be careful how you take from Greek mythology. Um, for example, Hades, translated hell, was also used as um, for kind of, kind of a, a, a Greek god. I have it there in front of me. Um, but I don't want to get spend too much time in Hades there, you know, it's like, it's a name, Hades or Pluto, the god of the lower regions. That's sometimes how it's used as well. So we've got to be careful not to import Greek mythological meanings from the culture into, sorry, I keep banging that, into the text. In the same way, we shouldn't, in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, logos. We shouldn't take how Plato or anybody else thought of Logos and import and take their pagan ideas and import it in. What we should do is take biblical, and a lot of times from the Old Testament, ideas into these words that were being used in the first century in 
in the Greek-speaking world. It was a kind of lingua franca of the age. Now, this verb, tartarao, is, it it comes from tartarus, but again, it's not a noun. It's not saying, it's the idea of being cast down into a place of judgment. So I think we are probably reading too much into it all. And at the same time, even if you could say, hey, Tartarus is used here for hell. Technically, it's not. Tartarao is used for the cast down into hell, this verb of being cast down into hell. Now, that could be referring to God's sovereignty and strength and power throwing down into hell, but it's a verb. Okay, let's just get that straight. It is a verb. All right. Um... So, cast down to hell, that verb there. Now, Tartarus, again, in Greek, is referring to a netherworld, um, place of punishment, often by lexicographers known as, it'll be derived that it's the deepest part of hell. The problem with Missler's interpretation here, it's contrary to lexicographers. It's contrary to anything... He's basically saying, well, the word Tartarus, not used here, but let's just, for argument's sake, say it is used here. It's different to Gehenna, hell. It's different to Hades, often translated hell, or sometimes, in a few instances, the grave or place of the dead. Um, It depends on the context, really. Um, Therefore, it's, it's not hell, it's somewhere else. Based on what? There's, there's no argumentation been provided here based on those two different words being used. And again, I would I would emphasize it's a verb. It's not talking about a noun. It's not talking about, hey, here's a name for hell or whatever. Yes. I know a lot of people say Tartarus is hell. Got, got it. Completely agree in a lot of senses. Not going to, but it's, again, think of this as a verb. So his argument doesn't really work here. It's a difficult word because like the word is not used in the rest of the New Testament. Um, Be very, very careful. Tartarus, okay, is below in, in Greek mythology is below Hades, below the place of the dead, a place of judgment, okay? So in the context of Peter's writing here, it, it seems that he's using this word to talk about this great judgment, uh, verse 1 of Second Peter chapter 2, talks about the false prophets and, and damnable heresies, and um, verse 2 of Second Peter chapter 2, uh, and many shall follow their pernicious ways by reason of them, truth shall be evil spoken of, really serious things, and obviously most of the time we talk about heresy, it's serious, and through Covetousness shall, verse 3, they shall with feign words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of long time lingereth not, and damnation slumbereth not. And then he uses the strong word of being cast down into judgment. Now, that place of judgment is obviously hell, okay? But we need to get, we need to import our views of where people are being cast down to, where the angels are being judged, etc., and so on, not from Greek mythology. 
it might in, inform something about the strength of the verb or something like that, but it must have mainly be derived from Scripture. Hopefully that helped. Place else, a place that Peter calls Tartarus. The word Tartarus only appears here in the Greek New Testament. However, we know a lot about the word in the Greek vocabulary. The word Tartarus is a Greek term for a dark abode of woe. It's the pit of darkness of the unseen world. It shows up, for example, in Homer's Iliad, and it's described as being as far below Hades as the earth is below heaven. This is not just a regular place. It's someplace really special. Now, I want to nail another... And that's dangerous. Again, you could say, what are you going to do? So, oh, Pluto... Or no, um, Plato says this about the Lagos, so therefore we should we should inform that Jesus is the word, Jesus is the Lagos, so we should we should find out about the Lagos, what from Plato's writings or the writings around that? No, that that would be really, really dangerous. And you find with a lot of people who believe in you know giants and all this kind of stuff, they sh often f they import a lot of Greek mythology. And I've not done a ton of research and some of the early church fathers, I give you probably the number of them maybe did Justin Martyr, for example. But it's a good chance a lot of them brought in Greek mythology with them when they were looking at the scriptures. There was a lot of Jewish fables around. There was a lot of apocalyptic stuff around. There was That's why the Book of Enoch was there in the 2nd century BC. Just because it exists doesn't mean it's accurate. At all. It just means there's a lot of Jewish fables around. And Titus 1, verse 16, verse 14, let's look up there. Oh. Yeah. Titus 1, verse 14 says, don't heed Jewish fables. So obviously Jewish fables exist. Titus 1, verse 14. So, yeah, there was a lot of stuff around. And whatever the views of the Midrash, whatever documents around the first century, should not. Now, if you kind of derive it from Scripture first, and then you say, ah, they also believed it back then, well, that's pretty useful and interesting. But the Jews are wrong in a lot of things in the first century. Let's continue. Alternative view down, because many people in this audience, probably, I will not ask for a show of hands, have been taught a different view of this passage, a very commonly taught view. And there are many outstanding, excellent authorities that happen to hold this view. But I, don't, I no longer believe it's very optional for us. Like many, there are many things in the scripture where good men can have different views. But I Okay, this starts off well. He says people can have different views, and it gets a little scary if I'm being honest after this point. And this is where some of these people can get extremely dogmatic and a little scary. It's important for you to consider yourself the viability of the lines of Seth view because unless you go the other way, there are many other things that I don't think you'll be able to understand. Let me just, let me just indulge me, if you will. The lines of Seth view is a view that this word sons of God... A little bit later, he kind of into his, oh, well, you're not going to really understand a lot of future prophecy. And this is where it gets scary. I, I don't, I'm not aware of, see, they tie in the days of Noah 
references to um, in the New Testament to, oh, well, that's talking about the Nephilim. That's dangerous. That is dangerous on its face. All right. If you think, oh, well, as it was in the days of Noah, what was happening in the days of Noah? Um, if you look at the context, it's talking about life was going on as normal. They were eating and they were drinking, and then judgment came. We're importing our view of various different things, often Greek mythology, into Scripture, Genesis 6, and now taking that import and placing it in the New Testament. Um, and look, good godly people can do it, and hopefully you can lead them in the right direction, but there's a danger there. There's a danger there. There's a danger whenever our, our Christian walk becomes lopsided. Whenever we emphasize one truth to the detriment of going out and evangelizing, being part of a local church, all this kind of thing. Actually, by the way, I hope, by God's grace, to do something over the break about so-called spiritual um, orphans or something like that, people who don't go to church, um, there's a lot, but profess to be Christian, and meet a lot of them, and um, yeah, I'm, I want to spend a program, I haven't spent it's been a couple of years since I've done a program on that, and I think it's so important because I think there's a lot of people who might listen to this program who will be all fascinated by this issue but don't even go to church, and um, that would be definitely imbalanced. But um, so somebody's asking me there about the Hebrew. I'm thinking you're talking about Tartarel. Um, I think the, well, no, the, the equivalent is Sheol in Hebrew, and that covers anything from the grave all the way to, well, hell. So, I, and I think that's why sometimes translators will choose to transliterate it and try not to just put hell every place, because there can be a few places here and there that um, people might get a bit nervous that that means that, you know, Christ went down into hell versus um, that they might think, oh, well, he's going to suffer. I don't know if I'm explaining it really well, but there are times when Hades in the New Testament, Greek, is referring to the grave. And there's a few times that it's referring to Sheol, the equivalent. And again, it, it depends on the context, and you have to be very, very careful about doing it. Anyway, so let's continue really refers to the, the, the faithful leadership of the Sethites. The daughters of Adam really refers to the daughters of Cain. And they were supposed to be separate. And the sin that's involved is their failure to maintain separation. He doesn't even seem to understand what the, the historic reform view is, or was. Um... It's missing something. It's not just about separation. It's about mixed marriages and the warning of, if you look at, grab some of the references there. We covered it last week, so I'm not going to go back over it again in places like Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. What will happen is, if you have 
if, if somebody marries, like Solomon did, marries an unbeliever, and he married many unbelievers, sadly, that they'll, their hearts will be led after foreign gods. And so will the children, and that, and that bore itself out. So it, it, it's ignoring that, con it's not just about, oh, separation, keep away from you kind of thing. In the New Testament, the same principle applies, by the way. You can only marry in the Lord. It is sinful and wrong for a believer to marry an unbeliever. And, and a minister of the gospel should never, if they suspect, or not even suspect, um, if somebody's a believer and, the, and they want to marry an unbeliever, they shouldn't perform the ceremony. It's wrong. So, same idea. It's not just about, it just sounds like, well, separate. Yeah, separation, but separation from what? There is no really good answer as to what the term Nephilim means by this view. That's sort of, frankly, that doesn't have a good response. But that's not, not elaborated, but that's the essence of the Asethite view, that that uh, the, the sons of God really refers to the good guys, the leadership of the good guys, and they were supposed to stay separate from the Canaanites, but they married the Canaanite, the Cain, excuse me, not Canaanites, the Canaanites, the daughters of Cain, and they married and, and had uh, offspring. Well, there's some problems with this. The text itself, the sons of God is never used of believers in the Old Testament. Um, I would say yes, it is, because I, I argued that last week. Um, let's get back, back up on the screen. Yes, it is. It, it doesn't matter. It's a very kind of dispensationalist type argument. Um, Sons of God is used of believers in, I would argue, in Genesis chapter 6. But just, we'll take that out of, the, out of the equation for now. Why does it only have to be the Old Testament? What criteria says, therefore, it must be you? Well, it, it fits that theory. The term Sons of God or um, Tecna and Theu or some variation of that it could be techna which is children of god or techna children or it might be huyoi which is sons I mean, it could be translated sons or children um there i think i might be miss, missing another one that is sometimes used anyway yes it is and it's used plenty of times in the new testament compare scripture with scripture not just old testament old testament scripture with scripture um there's no there's there's no biblical criteria for saying you have to ignore Matthew to Revelation in order to come up with your conclusion. And it's dangerous. And also you have to think of what does Ben I Elohim mean? Sons of God. Ben can be sons, it can be offspring, it can be progeny or some description. People who impute that view are bringing New Testament, misapplying New Testament passages. And by the way, Seth was not God and Cain was not Adam. And I'm, I'm not being cute here. I'm saying that's what, in effect, they're imputing. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, you have to, again, you have to look at the context and um, why was Adam in Luke chapter 3, at the end of that massive long genealogy, why was he called the son of God? a son of God. It can mean a direct creation from God. Um, you could use the same argument with angels. Angels are not God, but 
angels in Job are Ben Elohim three times in various references in in Job one six two one and thirty eight seven. Uh, it is referring to angels. Even the Septuagint says translates it angeloi. Whether it should or not is another issue. Um, it would be better to be more literate, but it's clear that the Septuagint saw Job as referring to angels. Septuagint is a third century BC translation from the Hebrew into Greek, but Genesis chapter six remained sons of God. They didn't see the need to put the word angels in there. Now there's a reference to possibly a later codex that has angels, but um, I digress. The one that the Septuagint ever uses says sons. Anyway, let's continue. In the text. And by the way, there's no mention of the daughters of Elohim. So you got some problems. No, and you have to look at the context of a um, daughters of Elohim. I don't know where he's... Uh, poor argument. The whole point of it... Uh, okay, we'll go to Genesis chapter 6. Let's look at the text. Verse 2. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men, and that they were beautiful, and that they took wives for themselves of all that they chose. This isn't the totality of every single thing. This is a summarization of the problem that was going on. People were marrying. I'm sure that there were godly women there too. Okay? It wasn't just all the men were evil and all the women were... Sorry. All the men were good and all the women were evil. You'd have to kind of come up with some straight... The point of it is, Scripture here, written by Moses, as Moses was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, that there was these unions taking place, these marriages taking place between one group and another group, believers and unbelievers. Just found this before starting the program, kind of a, as a little addition to explain... Um, what this is referring to, Genesis chapter 6. Um, this is a commentary by John Trapp. It's very short, doesn't go into every single thing. It's a very hard commentary to get, by the way. Um, commentary on the Old and New Testaments. He was a 17th century uh, Puritan. Here's what he said about um, some of these references. Where did we go? Yeah. Genesis chapter 6, and where did it go here? Oh, yeah. So he quotes Gigantes, which is how the, the Septuagint in Greek says, um, earth sprung. He's saying that's what it means, earth sprung. John Trapp goes on to write that they were, quote, of the earth, they spake of the earth. John chapter 3, verse 31. And the earth heard them, and they and heard them, and I say, and fell before them as the beasts of the field do before the, the roaring lion. Hence they are called in Hebrew Nephilim, such as being fallen from God, fell upon men, and by fear and force made others fall before them. Thus they ought they sought to renown and raise themselves by depressing others and doing violence. By this is not the way, but now they lie shrouded in the sheet of shame to, quote, do worthily of Ephrathah. That is, and he goes on, it's a very um, 
very useful understanding of it. I've heard that before, but Gigantus kind of the whole idea of Earthborn, even from Chuck Missler himself, years and years ago. This is stuff I looked into for the first two years I was saved and um, kind of diminished in interest after that. Now, um, just in reference, there's a question that's popped up. I'm not going to quote it, but I have no idea. Um, I have no idea, and I don't know how you'd be able to prove anything in regards to secret societies. I stay away from studying secret societies. The only thing I say is it's sinful to be part of a secret society. The problem with studying secret societies is they're secret and it's very hard to study them. And you're going to find one source that says one thing, uh, another source that says another thing. I, my advice is to stay away from it. G get a general biblical understanding of why nobody should be a, uh, any member of any secret society. Name them off the top of your head. If, if it, we should be, our lives as Christians should be an open book, but I digress. That's a question that was in the chat room. Okay, so let's continue. But more important, there is a grammatical antithesis between the sons of God, daughters of men. You see, the, the structure is clear. In fact, in Psalm 82, we also, it says, ye are gods and all of you are children of the Most High, but ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. These antithesis is, shows up in the Old Testament several places. Also, and fall now this is, I'll be honest, I didn't really, I've listened to this about two or three times, but this didn't really, there's so many, there's so much, I don't want to use the word bizarre and just say that's weird and therefore that debunks it. It doesn't. Um, we have to interact with it and this is a very popular view and, you know, if it, it is causing people to stumble, we need to pull down strongholds raised against knowledge of the truth and I think this is um, one such thing. Um, he's quoting here from Psalm 82, verses 5 and 6. I'll be honest, years ago, I didn't know what to make of Psalm 82. And one thing that never, you know, you know those parts of Scripture, you read through them, you have kind of an idea, but it doesn't quite click. And I tell you, it was studying Hebrew and understanding the word Elohim, what it meant, how it can be translated, and how it means, basically Elohim. Okay, of course, it's translated God. It's translated God in Genesis 1, down to, in, let me think, Genesis 3. It's sometimes translated gods in the King James. I can't remember what verse. Um, the lie of the serpent, it shall be as gods. It could also be translated, you shall be as God, big G. Psalm 82, I preached in it about well, two, three months ago, is talking about Elohim is in the presence of Elohim. He's in the, the council of the mighty. I'm kind of paraphrasing here a little bit. Um, he is tying this in, I'm not exactly sure how, to Genesis chapter 6 and this fallen angel view and all that, which is... Again, potentially really, really problematic. Again, I might not go no further, and I wouldn't get hyper with somebody just if they hold this view. Maybe f share one or two things that might get them thinking, but don't push too far because, um, anyway. So it says, I have said ye are gods. This is Psalm 82, verse 5 and 6. And all of you are children of the Most High. I'll bring it up on the screen there. But ye shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. 
this is talk about in short, if you want more of this good I've preached in this, it's on sermon audio. Ye are gods, it's referring to ye are Elohim rulers. And Elohim can be translated rulers, it can be translated pagan gods or God, and it depends on the context. Um it literally means mighty one or mighty ones, depending again, depending on the context. It can be singular or plural. Ye are Elohim. Gods is a perfectly legitimate translation, by the way. Um, the Septuagint says Theos, Theoi, or whatever the, the plural is of um, Theo. Um, ye are rulers, ye are mighty ones, and all of your children are the most high. Now, it's saying to the rulers, all rulers, whether on earth or whatever else, your children are the most high. Now, I think that my understanding of that is basically they've been creating God's image while you have derived authority from God, Elohim, the creator of heaven and earth. There's the warning to these rulers of the earth. You have to look at the whole psalm to make sense of it. And the Hebrew does really, really help here. But you shall die like men and fall like one of the princes. There's a warning to these rulers. You are mighty ones. However, you will die like men. Wonderful psalm. Become something that it was for years. I was like, I don't know what to exactly make of that. And then when it clicked, I was like, now one of my favorites. And it's really reassuring in the, in, in the, in the current climate which we're living in. Of the rulers of the world doing whatever they want, God will judge them. God will judge these mighty ones. The mighty one will judge the mighty ones. The Elohim is the ruler of rulers. How this ties in with fallen angels in Nephilim? Zero. Nothing. Michael Heiser kind of goes off in a weird direction in this as well. Um, there's plenty of consensus that Elohim is referring to rulers, not some celestial whatever. Um, there's nothing really to support that. And anyway, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but we'll continue. One of the princes, these antithesis is, shows up in the Old Testament several places. Also, the line of Seth infers that there's a separation they are supposed to keep, but that's a fallacy because the lines of separ of nations didn't get separated until Genesis 11. We're talking about Genesis. Nothing to do with this. Um, their believers were not to marry unbelievers. The moral law summarized in the Ten Commandments has always been there. It's the eternal law. It's been there from eternity. God writes this, these Ten Commandments with his own finger on tables of stone. They are completely different. They are unique. The law of God is written on man's heart, especially when persons regenerated and born again. Um, there's a sense in which it's on the unbeliever's heart, but they suppress the truth and the righteousness. There's reference to this in, in Romans chapter 2, verse 15. But a fallen person who's not been regenerated by the Spirit of God hates that and hates the light and suppresses it and fights against it. Um, 
in later in the book of genesis there are there is obviously the the division of nations the confusing of languages but that's not the separation there's separation if you want to put a separation between the godly and the ungodly basically those who are in covenant with god right cain and abel go back to cain and abel there's a good argument can be made that adam and eve both trusted in christ the promise of the seed in genesis 3 15 cain and abel were raised in the faith however cain was of the wicked one first john tells us this for chapter three um also he showed the fruit of that he hated Abel's works. Abel was righteous. Abel was godly. He hadn't broken the covenant in unbelief. Cain had. And Cain kills his brother. So what happens at this point? Seth is born, and it's, it talks about at the end of Genesis chapter 4, and Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and named him Seth, for God has appointed another seed for me instead of Abel. The Bible says it's instead of Abel. Abel was godly, godly person. And then it says in verse 26, a Seth was born to him, also a son was born, and he named him Enosh. What happened then? Then men became, began to call on the name of the Lord. They began to worship and depend on God. Now, it's not that it, it just started there, but that's kind of a kind of a, a sense of a collective. Very much pointing that here's godly seed. It's the same today, by the way. Covenant families will worship together at home. So Again, if you approach this from covenant theology point of view, historic covenant theology point of view, then this is the only conclusion you can bring out of it. Again, Genesis 6 is not just plopped in the middle out of a, taken out of the book of Enoch or something from the second century. It is after Genesis 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. And you have to say, what is Genesis 1 to 5 talking about? It tells you. But there seems to be kind of a desperation to get this in here. Anyway, the separation was there from day one, if you want to call it that separation. Um, Cain and Abel. Then Seth and Cain. This is, by the way, this does not mean every single descendant from Seth was godly. There's covenant breakers. Abraham and Ishmael. Ishmael was a covenant breaker. Isaac was not. So... Just to say, like, oh, you're saying the godly line of Seth was, and therefore every single person in Seth's line was godly. No, we're not saying that at all. That they're the ones who are in covenant still with God. The other line had broken away in rebellion from God. And even if, as Mistler will point out later on, just because some of them have names that refer to God, I haven't looked into this or anything like that, even if that we'll, we'll, present, we'll pretend that that's the case or whatever the case, I wouldn't encourage, I've seen a lot of errors in Missler's evidence as I've gone through. I haven't gone through all of it, but I've seen plenty of it, errors. But 
just because somebody gives somebody a biblical name even today does not mean that they are a believer. And just as in the New Testament, if you if if a believer, if believers have children, they will raise their child in the covenant. Now that person may grow up to be a covenant breaker. They may be unregenerate. They may be they may be hate God. Then they are cut off from the covenant through unbelief. If you want a a, a chapter that goes through this in detail, Romans. Chapter 11, or especially the second half of Ephesians chapter 2. Romans chapter 11, especially. Um, yeah, a comment in the chat room said that uh, the scene is fallen angel view, go really haywire. Um, I don't know what second creation is. Um, yeah, and I think it's going to, I think it's going to continue to go in more different directions. I think a lot of it is. Can I be honest? I think a lot of it's boredom. That might come across as kind of harsh. I think there's just... If there was a conference on justification by faith alone, if there was a conference on biblical sanctification, how many people would turn up? How many of the people who are fascinated by this topic, and to be honest, I don't want to talk about it much after this show. I just want to get off my chest. I've been sitting on this program for years. Every time I'd read through my scripture, read through the Bible, read through Genesis, and I go, uh, I'm sitting on this stuff, and and eventually I was like, okay, fine, I'm gonna do this, I'm gonna get it done. But how many people are fascinated by Nephilim and all this kind of stuff? I'm not saying none of them. I, I'm sure some of them would, but how many? Very few. But if you had a future prophecy. Some new discovery. It'd be packed. People are excited. And sadly, they're all united, united around this. And the views keep getting stranger and strange. It's a bit like a drug. It is a bit like a drug. Years ago when... I don't know. Look, some of these people, and I don't want to be, this is not every single person. There are some people who are godly men, and they just think this, this is what it says. And that's it. This is not talking about everybody who holds the angel view. I want to be very, very clear about that. There are godly people. That, you know, your, your minister might believe this, but it might go no further than that. And if it doesn't go any further than that, I wouldn't make it an issue. But if it does go into strange views... Um, Let's look at the next argument that he's going to make here. This concept of separation was imposed upon Isaac and following. Not beforehand. There's no text. There's no textual basis for that. And by the way, Ishmael was not told to be separate. Don't assume. Um, let's flesh out that theory. And this is a dangerous, I want to say Maybe I should tone down my language a little bit. It's problematic, right? And it, it happens a lot. Um, was there a command to not kill? Honestly, just bear with me here a second. 
You get to Genesis chapter 4, and you have Cain and Abel in the first eight verses, and there's a murder. Does Cain kind of go and turn around and go, well, I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to murder. The only commandment you gave me was, don't eat of the tree of the fruit and knowledge, you know, gave to, obviously, to Adam and Eve. But is there any commandment, explicit commandment, to not murder? Do we have to wait until Exodus chapter 20 before the Ten Commandments come in? Or what's the moral law summarizing the Ten Commandments? No! Adam and Eve were created an image of God, and they had the, the law of God, the mor God's moral character, written on their hearts. Did they have to wait until Genesis 9-6 before it was seen as murder was wrong? Of course, that's talking more of the death penalty, but no. Murder's always wrong. Murder was always an attack upon the image of God. So, if you well, what's the separation? Well, what's being referenced in Genesis chapter 6? Mixed marriages. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Was adultery okay before Genesis chapter 6? Now, I know it depends on how you view Genesis chapter 6. But no, the Ten Commandments, while they were not written with the finger of God at this point, were there. At no time in history was it okay, take the first commandment, to worship another god. At no time in history, prior to Exodus 20 or whatever, at no time in history was it okay to make idols. At no time in history was it okay to blaspheme God, the third commandment. At no time in history was it okay to violate the Sabbath. <clears throat> Going right back to creation week, Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. At no time in history. And so it is also with the second table of the law. This is, and, and there's, there's a sense in which when Adam ate of the, the, the fruit of the tree of knowledge, good and evil, and was the, the federal head of all mankind, he broke both tables of the law. He, he did not show love to God because he disobeyed him. And he did not show love to neighbor because he condemned the human race. And in the book of James, it's very clear. If you break the, the law in one point, you break it in all. Because the law, essentially, go, it goes together. And it's summarized again in the New Testament. Jesus said that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. The first table of the law, commandments 1 to 4. And then commandments 5 to 10. Love your neighbor as yourself. These are summaries. These are summaries. You know, for example, you should not kill. The negative is you don't kill somebody, but also the positive of that commandment is preserve life. Preserve life. These are summaries. Anyway, but that's what I'm saying. We have to have a, a whole list. If you have a holistic view of scripture and if look if you're new to the faith i would urge you don't get, i suppose don't get the hot latest hot stuff off the press go get a westminster shorter catechism and read through it what is man's chief end question one 
to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Why are you here? First question, dealing with that. What's man's achievement? To glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. You know, people, I remember I, I didn't give people the right answer years ago. People asked me, what, what, what should I read as a young Christian? And you think about, there's this book, get a, get a catechism, get a shorter catechism. And then once you've, you've read through that, you master get a large catechism. And there are many during the Reformation period, but very hard to beat the Westminster or something like the Heidelberg. Anyway. Arabs today are descendants of Ishmael. We can't prove it. Why? Because Ishmael never kept separate. Small point, but I just thought there'd be Muslims here. I want, I, don't, I want to have something to offend everyone. I don't want to play favorite. I, I keep hearing this thing about Ishmael and all this kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, I don't see any biblical warrant for it, but I digress. We'll, we'll continue. But furthermore, Genesis 6, verse 12 indicts this view because as all flesh is corrupted. It doesn't say that, that uh, you know, one particular group was the problem. The he's, he's hopping around a lot, this is one of the problems. And look, I suppose there's a sense in which I picked a video that would succinctly place something to look at and to examine, see if there's any biblical warrant for it. He's referring to um, verse 11 of Genesis chapter 6, that the earth was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Sorry, now what was the verse? Says all flesh is corrupt. That uh, you know, one particular group was the problem. That uh, you know, one particular group was the sorry there. Descendants of Ishmael. We can't prove it. Why? Because Ishmael never kept separate. Small point, but I just thought there'd be Muslims here. I want. I don't. I want to have something to offend everyone. I don't want to play favorites. <laughs> but furthermore, Genesis six verse twelve indicts. Sorry, verse twelve. Why did I miss that? Anyway, so. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Now, how would you interpret that? Now, it can't mean that Noah was corrupt, because we're told that in verse 9, Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations, and walked with God. Noah did what Abraham did, Genesis 15, verse 6. The doctrine of justification by faith alone, right there in Genesis 15, verse 6. And he believed in the Lord, and he accounted to him, and it and he accounted it to him for righteousness. He believed the Lord by faith alone. Noah trusted in the Lord by faith alone, apart from works, lest any man should boast. Noah walked with God. That was the fruit of his conversion. That's what it looks like. If somebody's been born again, regenerated by the Spirit of God, they walk with God. Noah was a just man. So when it looks upon the old earth, does it talk about Noah? No. It's not talking about Noah and his family. The earth was also corrupt. You see, it's talking about... It's not talk... Here we're not talking about... When you get to this point, you're not talking about Seth... And um, we're not talking about the line, you know, lines of Seth. Where we've moved on from this point. How would I put it? There was obviously a massive apostasy 
that had taken place in a, in a departure from the Lord and rank covenant breaking to the point where the only people, that's a scary thing, isn't it? The only people on earth who profess faith in Jesus Christ was no one in his family. His sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. It got to that point. And it's talk about moral corruption. Again, if you start off with the wrong premise and say, oh, it's this physical corruption. You could also say, well, does that mean Noah was corrupted? Obviously, you have to qualify the all. You because that's all flesh is corrupted. It doesn't say that, that uh, you know one particular group was the problem. The line of Seth also implies that or infers that the that nobody's saying the line of Seth is on the ark or ended up in the ark. There was a lot of apostasy, a lot of breakoffs, because there was a lot of people that said you know there was a lot of descendants of Seth and Enosh and. Canaan and Mahalel and got Jared and Mahalel and lived 80 years and all these people. But all the earth was corrupted. The line of Seth was godly. Only Enoch and Noah's eight were spared of the flood. I don't know what he means by Enoch. Enoch, all right, was there in Genesis chapter 5. Let's put me back on the screen there. Um, although you'd probably prefer me not being. Um, so Genesis chapter 5, Enoch is carried away. Is it verse 24? Yeah. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, and God took him. Enoch's not here by this point. So... Yeah, it, it, I don't even like saying the lines of Seth, but you, know, you go back, there's apostasies and breakoffs from that. Nobody's disputing that. That's just pretty standard, typical covenant theology. Honestly. And there's been a lot of breakoffs from that line of Seth. And what's left is Noah and his sons. people there, except those, those nine. Also, the text says that the sons of God took wives of all whom they chose. You don't get the impression it was a participative choice. You get the impression they took wives. And it doesn't sound like they're too godly in terms of the, that may be pushing something. It may be pushing. It is pushing. There's nothing, nothing to indicate in the text or anything else. The Hebrew word here, lakach, is anything other than the normal usage of taking wives. All the, go, go look it up. I'm not going to spend time in it. It's a bizarre argument. If you do the time, and there's, there's a, a reference to the same ver, Hebrew verb um, being translated and clear in the context that it means to marry. It's not like forcibly marrying. There's nothing in the, in the context, nothing at all. To take a wife was just, the English translation that we have today was just common parlance. It's just of all they chose. Well, and what and what was the parameters they chose? Was it because these 
daughters of men were godly? No, because they were beautiful. There seems to be a superficiality about it, not basing it upon godly reasons. Now, we shouldn't read too much into it and all this kind of stuff. The, the major thing about this is not exactly, to, to an extent, we're not told the exact... We're told, you know, there's, there's a, a massive rank apostasy brought about because people were mixed marrying. And I'm not talking mixed marrying with nations or races or anything like that, or, or what we think of races, because all the blood of the earth is one, you know, this... Is just different skin colors. The Bible is very, very clear in that. But the mixed marriages is referring to a believer and an unbeliever. A believer and an unbeliever. And out of that came rank apostasy and breaking away. And by the end of it, the earth was corrupt before God and was filled with violence. That's what happens when you get sinful men, these powerful men who became men of old, men of renown, and they dominated, they used their power, their physical prowess, they became these champions, these, uh, these mighty men, these giborim, these, these warriors who dominated over other people. They had sinful hearts and they had the power to carry it out. It's a bit like, you know, when people say, oh, he was such a different, you know, politicians and they get elected and they, they sound wonderful and they might have been wonderful in a certain extent prior to getting elected, but now they have power. They can carry out all, all the desires of their heart. Nothing's holding them back. And so it was with these people. You see Goliath, powerful man, and they all looked at him. He was the champion. Men of own, men of renown. Um, just in case anybody, if anybody's got questions, um, I will try and cover them in the last few minutes of the program right after we finish this. Why did the Sethites, if they're so godly, perish in the flood? That's the problem. They apostatized, but we already dealt with that. They broke away. They became the ungodly line. Again, this makes sense. Only if you understand covenant theology. I don't want to be kind of, this is elitist or anything like that, but this is a covenant theology. If... If believers, believers have a child and their child breaks away, it didn't it doesn't mean that the household no longer is holy. But you have somebody who's apostate or something like that. Yeah. And by the way, Enosh, who is Seth's son, is the one that initiated defiance of God. Most people don't know this because there's a mistranslation in most of our Bibles. Yeah, um... Look, I'll play it first and I'll respond to it. This is 425. It doesn't say then man began, began to call upon the name of the Lord as the, as the English would render it. It really says then man began, began to profane the name of the Lord in the Targum of Onkelos, the Targum of Jonathan. So he's basically saying, well, you know, this, um, this, he's looking at the end of Genesis chapter 4 and looking at Seth and Enosh and oh, Enosh, he was just this rebel. So there's no um, godly line here. Even if true, by the way, it's not. There's nothing to indicate this. But even if true, just say, just say um, Seth was godly, but Enosh wasn't. And just say it's even true. It's not, but just say it is. 
Well, it doesn't mean Seth is a godly. It just means... It'd be like, if Ishmael breaks away from the covenant, it doesn't make... It doesn't say that Abraham's line isn't godly. Or holy anymore. It still carries on through Abraham's line. It still does today. Genesis, uh, Galatians chapter 3. No matter how many apostates you're ever going to find. But... There is not a single translation outside of... I could only find one, and it was the ISV, the International Standard Version, on which Missler served on the board of directors. About 10 years ago, I think it was. Um, that is the only translation in English. I'm not saying that that means, therefore, it's true. Look, you can only chase up so many left-of-field views, and this is certainly left-of-field. I looked through every available English translation, even the weird ones, and only, like the message, which isn't a translation at all, none of them render the verse profane. None of them. Only the ISV in which Missler was a part of. So, you gotta scratch your head. I mean, he's refer referencing the Targum. So? Trying to remember, I think the Targum is like an early translation, but I digress. Um, talks about Jerome. I don't know. Maybe maybe that is true. Early church father references are only useful secondarily if this view is you know all the way through, and the church fathers held to it as well. If you can only find the church fathers holding to a view, and perhaps it fell out of usage. It might not mean that it's great. For example, there's some early church fathers who believed that the atonement was a ransom to Satan. And it really took until like Anselm in the 11th century before some of those ideas were kind of debunked. There wasn't unanimity about that, but does that mean we should go back to that view of some of the early church fathers? I'm not saying all of them did, but it was a fairly popular view among some about the atonement? Or how about justification? Should we go for an infused justification which was understood prior to the Reformation? Justification wasn't really thought about in a huge detail until Melanchthon and Luther and Calvin and all fleshed it out in greater detail and saw that it was forensic in nature. So, not saying ignore the early church fathers. I'm not saying be scared of them. I'm not saying they're going to turn you into Roman Catholics or anything, anything silly like that. But just understand their time and understand there was a lot of errors around the place. There was in church government going right back to second century, various errors cropped in. And they didn't have the hindsight we have today. And they didn't have, they didn't have the, the, the Nicene Creed and all that about the Trinity. They might have gone a bit funny in the Trinity a few times, maybe in the early couple of years. And then they had to deal with Christological issues. Just, not saying ignore it, but take it in its context. Takes a bit more work, but you can't just lift the quote and say, aha, you see, this, this existed in, in, in the early church. Did it? Um, mentions Nimonides. Um, I think it was a Jewish commentary. Doesn't tell you a whole lot, but... Rashi, other Jewish 
uh, also Christian Jerome, Maimonides in the, in the 12th century. The authorities that, if you really get in behind that verse, you'll discover that our English Bible has a misleading rendering of that. That in the days of Enosh is when apostasy began. And so it's a small point, but it, it does cloud the idea that the lines of Seth were good guys. He doesn't understand what that means. It doesn't mean that they're all good guys. It means that they were in covenant with God, and will many of them apostatize? Yeah. Perhaps down the line, some of the lines of Cain were grafted back in. We're not told, okay, by the way. But it would still not invalidate the argument that this is talking about believers intermarrying with unbelievers. I don't even like calling it the Sethite view. I'll be honest. Can I be honest? I don't like calling it the Sethite view. I like calling it the believer, the unbeliever view, if you want to call it that. The covenant theology view. Because you get fixated about Seth and all this kind of stuff, and then you have to have this perfect line. It's not going to work like that. It's believers and unbelievers. The daughters of Cain, the implication of the Cainites are bad guys. Well, first of all, there's no basis for a subset of the daughters of Adam. That's, that's conjecture. The Canaanites were not necessarily godless. If you study Cain's genealogy, following Cain in Genesis chapter 4, you'll discover in verse 18, many of his descendants had the name of God in their names. We don't know, but if you're going to draw a conjecture, it's more likely that he, even though he was guilty of that sin with Abel, that he repented and he tried to raise his family God-fearing. Don't this is a bizarre view, considering what the rest of the Bible says about Cain. I don't want to go back into this again, but first is a first John chapter three. I think it's around verse twelve. It's very, very clear. Cain was of the the evil one, and Abel was righteous, and there's just nothing to indicate anything else. And any reference to Cain was bad. There's no indication anywhere. This isn't conjecture. This idea that the Sethites were good guys and the Canaanites, were, the Canaanites were bad guys is a contrivance of liberal scholarship, not of the text. Liberal scholarship? What are you talking about? It, 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 was, the, the, it was the only reform view that I'm aware of for centuries. Liberals. Seriously? And by the way, were the daughters of Seth so unattractive? I don't quite understand. <laughs> but the other issue is these unnatural offspring as a result of the union. What are these Nephilim? Now, now I don't want to labor on this too much, but how, how is it unnatural? What are we talking about? They're, you can derive from the name fallen ones, and you can also derive that they were big. You know, a lot of translations will say giants, gigantes. Um, What's supernatural about them? Mighty men, mighty men, Giborim. There's nothing from the text that says that these are supernatural. Giborim is just a term used the warriors. They may have been, but you're going to have to provide evidence that these warriors were somehow supernatural. That, that's just Greek mythology. I think you're bringing into the text there. There's nothing about it. Mighty men who are of old men of renown. They were warriors. That's all it means. 
my explanation, I, I'll grant, it's not very exciting, but, but then again, but you know what? The truth can be very liberating and a lot more exciting than, than, than this stuff sometimes. They had supernatural offspring. Now, by the way, when a believer or an unbeliever gets married, they may have monsters, but they don't have, you know, a natural offspring. And uh, also it implies that there were no X chromosomes among the Sethites. There were no women of renown, only men of renown. This is bizarre. Um, you know, men of renown, we don't know. Warriors tended to be men, like Goliath. And However, does that say that there was never, ever females among them? No, we can't deny that. Probably wasn't, but men and brothers in the New Testament, Adelphoi, they're collective terms. They can include... If you if you go to the start of Genesis 6, are we saying that when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, are we saying there was only men? There's no women? No, you, you never say that. There's a bizarre use of it, of human language. And why was Noah's genealogy so distinctively highlighted in Genesis 6, 9? Now, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, as I point out in Jude 6 and 7, 1 Peter 3, 19 and 20, and 2 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, even the unique term, use of the, the Greek term is fascinating. The New Testament seems to very clearly corroborate what I'll call the angel view of Genesis 6. So let me just summarize. We've got a problem with the text itself. We've got an inferred separation. In okay, I think we're going to leave it there because I think we spend way too much time on this. Um, hopefully there's been no technical difficulties during this program. Now, there's a few things I want to... I don't know how quite I've just made this... Um, there's a few things I want to look at because uh, there's a few questions I just want to look at um, before I finish off. Um, somebody says that they're having a hard time finding a Reformed church um, that does not practice Christmas. I understand. I don't like. I don't like Christmas at all, or I don't even like using the term. I, I like to say the so-called festival associated with December 25th. I, I wouldn't, I don't go near it. I, I have, but I have godly friends who I love deeply who do practice it. And um, I think we should also be balanced and have a kind of a love and sensitivity about it. It's idolatry. I despise it. Don't get me wrong. Um, Don't base your choice of church based upon Christmas observance and non-Christmas observance. If they're doing something Christmas-related, just maybe stay away from it or something like that. Um, it's important. It's not like it's not important. It's the regular principle of worship. It's um, There's only one holy day set aside, and you should go to a church which is close by. Don't get something that's crazy too far from you. But go to a church which loves the Lord and teaches the word of God and hopefully they have a high view of the Sabbath and of regulating the holy days and all this kind of stuff okay and also the sec you know hopefully try and find you know the church where God would have you there's no perfect church on planet earth okay but you are commanded to go Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 and 13 17 there's no it doesn't matter I would rather, 
I'm so blessed in the church. I love the church I'm a member of. Absolutely love the church I'm a member of. Love the people there. We're so blessed. I, you know, just pinch myself. But here's the thing. If there was no other church in the area but a Pentecostal church, and it was a lit, and look, I am no fan of Pentecostal theology or anything like that. But I would go to a Pentecostal church over nothing. As long as it is a church that preaches the gospel and the sacraments are administered. And there's some degree, obviously it'll be imperfect, of biblical church discipline. Because if there's no church discipline, the church will disappear. Eventually. So there's no perfect churches on earth. Pray about it, but you should be going to a church. And don't make that one issue, Christmas or anything else, the central issue by which you choose a church. I will go to a church, even if they celebrate Christmas, I will not go to a, a carol singing. I will not go to anything where, you know, supporting violation of the fourth commandment or whatever else. But I'll support the church in any way I can. Don't be odd about it. Don't love your brothers in Christ. You're not going to agree with them on everything, but love them. Um, I hope that makes sense. Don't make that the one central issue. It's, and I'm not saying it's not important. It is. And if you can, if there's two great churches side by side, like don't pick a terrible church. You can pick a really strange church, but just because they don't celebrate Christmas, they can be fairly cultish and a bit weird. Um. And they might not be very orthodox in many places. So don't hone in on that. Start with the gospel. How are they on the gospel? How is the preaching? Um, do they sing the Psalms in worship? Um, are there instruments? I'm I'm like lots of people in your in various parts of church history against instruments in worship because I believe it's Judaizing of the church. So there's lots of issues. And by but that should not be the main, main, main thing, okay? Um, skipping on um, to the next question, um, would you recommend the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland? I know of or know of a good number of people, godly people who have had some contact with who are members in the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Yes, from what I know, I don't, I don't know a ton. They seem to be a conservative... Orthodox denomination in Scotland, yes. Um, there's also other good denominations in Scotland, by the way. Um, the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland continuing. Be very similar to our own denomination. And then there's also the sister church in Scotland, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland. Now, as being a Reformed Presbyterian, I will recommend the Reformed Presbyterians first and foremost um, for our covenanting views and pointing back to Solemn League and Covenant of 1643. But things like that, apart from that, yes, recommend the... Uh, you have a bit of a... It depends on where you are in Scotland. There's a bit of a... A bit spoiled for choice in some ways with denominations. Perhaps there's too many of them. Um, well, if you're Presbyterian, you're hoping for one church, really. Um, you... Yeah, there's Reformed Presbyterian Church of Scotland, obviously a sister church of our own. Covenanters is another title for them. 
Um, Free Church of Scotland continuing and the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland. They publish great books. Apart from that, I don't know a ton. So, and I've heard of there's some Riga preachers in their denomination. Um, go visit, maybe visit for a while and pray about it. And um, yeah, hopefully the Lord will lead you in that. Um, yeah. So, and it's very hard. Anytime I cover stuff like this, um, stuff that's a bit strange, um, we don't know. So been some reference in Freemasonry or something like that in the chat. You can never prove that. I, I, I have always said trying to prove that here is the first person who came up with this angel view and tracing it back. It's, it's, it's impossible. I used to do years ago. We don't know. I do think it was in the early church. Probably, but again, I would reiterate, before I leave off this program, the admonition, as we finish off here, the admonition in Titus chapter 1, verse 14, there, um, or is it there? Not giving heed. I'll read from verse 13. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. So be very careful about Jewish fables. Obviously, when Paul was writing to Titus, there were Jewish fables around the place. And we have some of those writings today. How do we decide what's true? Compare everything with Scripture. And let that be your guide. This is Paul Flynn. May God bless you all.